I am George Anderson. I am Elizabeth Link. I am Ben Brannan. We are going on a journey through the Gospel of Mark with a sermon series titled, Reimagined. Together, we'll explore why the Gospel is in such a hurry for readers to get to know and keep up with Jesus. Today's sermon is a stop along the way of that journey. Join us as we reflect on what was, rethink what is, and reimagine what will be. Let us pray. Holy God, help us hear the question you ask of our lives. And then by the work of your Spirit, help us to answer with our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our passage this morning is the hinge which holds together the two halves of the gospel. And at the gospel's very beginning, in the very first verse, the narrator tells us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now we know. And then we spend the whole rest of the gospel waiting to see who can figure that out. Who can learn what we already know? First, that Jesus is the long-awaited hero who will lead the Jewish people back to a favored status as the kingdom of God. And second, that Jesus is God's son. We'll not hear anyone call Jesus God's son till the very end, or almost the very end. It happens at the cross after Jesus takes his last breath. But halfway through the gospel, where we are, we hear a follower of Jesus finally calling him the Christ, the Messiah, the one who will deliver God's chosen people, the Jews. It is a half-through moment that is halfway true. Peter gives Jesus the title, but then proves he does not yet know what that title fully means. Listen for Peter's confession, and listen for what Jesus has to say to Peter, and possibly to us. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? 
Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The word of the Lord. You just heard Peter's confession. And by confession, I do not mean confession of sins. Though admitting how one falls short of what God would have us think and do is an important part of what it means to be authentically Christian, indeed, what it means to be an authentic human being, Peter's is a different kind of confession. He confesses what he believes. And Peter's confession of faith really is an exciting one. He is saying, Jesus, you're the one. You're the one we've been waiting for for centuries. I imagine it this way. Peter blurts out something that is as much a realization as it is a confession. I am reminded of one of my favorite stories of Jane Brown. Anyone who was an active member of this church before 2009 knew who Jane Brown was. When she walked into the room, you knew it. You either saw her right away or you heard her right away. Everything about her was dramatic. She was tall, thin, always well-dressed, had a commanding nose and shockingly white hair pulled back in a perfect bun, and her voice could command a room, and she spoke with a theatrical expression of a 19th century Shakespearean actress. Tomatoes! I'm not going to explain that. That's part of another story I'll tell you some other time. (laughs) Well, during World War II, a dashing Navy officer, Blackwell Brown, proposed to her. And Jane had a hard time deciding whether or not to accept his proposal, and so she put him off. And then one day, while sitting in a crowded theater, I think it was the Met, sitting in a crowded theater, listening to a symphony concert, she suddenly leapt to her feet and shouted at the top of her lungs, I love that man, and I'm going to marry him. (laughs) I think she even got some applause. (laughs) Now, I don't imagine Peter shouting like that, but I do imagine him suddenly being convicted of something that he had been working on, that he had been wondering if it was true. As I said in the sermon a few Sundays ago, he's probably known Jesus since they were both children, small town they both came from it. They had many conversations probably where he heard Jesus speak of his vision of a new kingdom of justice and reconciliation, and they spoke of taking this vision, which they were calling the gospel or good news, to the people. And when Jesus had called him from the shore, telling him that it's time, it's time for him to follow him, Peter left his fishing nets and had done just that. And then Peter was with him and saw all that had taken place. He watched first a few, then many, then thousands respond to Jesus when he preached and when he healed. The crowds grew so large that Peter once saw some guys tear a hole in the roof of a house just so they could lower a paralyzed friend to Jesus' feet. And all along, Peter has been wondering what all this means and what is it about Jesus that commands so much, that commands attention, commands followers, even commands demons to flee. And then, as they're traveling, Jesus asked them a question. There's a lot of buzz about Jesus going around, and he asked the disciples, who are they saying that I am? Well, that's an easy one to answer because the disciples have all heard the rumors. They've heard the buzz. They say, well, some are saying John the Baptist or someone like him. 
Elijah returned, or another prophet like Jeremiah or Isaiah. And then Jesus asked them a second question. Well, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter blurts out what we, the readers of Mark's gospel, have known since the very first verse, but no one in the story has yet said out loud. Peter blurts it out. You are the Christ. A suspicion turned into a confession, an opinion becoming a proclamation. Jesus, Peter is saying, is going to be that Messiah we've been looking for, a leader of a revolution, a new king who will bring the past into the future and lead the people to reclaim their land and their identity as a people of God. And that's fine. Jesus does not rebuke Peter. He tells them all just to hush and keep this under their hats, but there's nothing wrong with what Peter has just said. Peter may know only the good news right now and not yet the hard news, but sometimes that's enough. And I want to claim that. Sometimes that's enough just to be happy, just to be joyful about some vision for the future. I mean, we who believe in the God who came, that we came to know in Christ have these moments when we claim something wonderful about life with Christ, and many of those celebrations happen in church. We'll have one of those moments on a Sunday in November when we will baptize Penelope Greenwald. Of course, Penelope is going to have some hard and painful times in her life, but that's not going to be on our minds that Sunday, is it? I mean, you're going to strain to see the baby as she has walked up and down the aisle, and I'll enjoy being the one to walk her. She might even cry or scream. It won't matter. It still won't rob the joy of the moment. Although I really doubt that's going to happen. They never cry on me. We'll have one of those moments on a Sunday in January when 8th and ninth graders are confirmed. Those young people will already have had struggles to understand their place and their responsibility in life. And we know that they're going to face many challenges that will test their faith and their integrity. But that's not going to be on our minds that Sunday. Some of us have been in church for a long time, and we remember a few of their baptisms. We remember seeing some of them in strollers up and down church hallways, maybe during preschool. We've seen them come and sit before the steps in the chancel, and we've seen them stand on the steps singing in children's choirs. So it is going to be just fine with us that they'll be dressed up and have a happy picture taken that will be displayed on the wall outside the fellowship hall. It will be fine because our sole focus will be on a simple, joyful truth that they are coming into their own as followers of Christ. And we're going to have several of those moments on those Saturdays in November and May when four grown children of this church will answer the question, will you with I do and marry somebody else? Never mind that they will learn that sometimes being married is hard. And it takes sustained commitment to keep those marriages strong as Jane and Blackwell Brown did for the better part of seven decades. But marriages are rightfully celebrated. They're called celebrations because you know what? If you get started in the right direction, the beginning should be celebrated, even if the journey sometimes will be hard. In these moments, in those moments of celebration, we can understand Jesus better when he said this, 
My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I've had those moments individually. You probably have too. I usually don't share memories of my moments because they can sound sappy and they can reveal moments of my naivete. But I can remember moments when I was so overwhelmed with a sense of God's purpose or, or presence in my life that all I could feel was happiness about it. All I could feel was joy. No fear, no hesitation, no anxiety, just joy. I remember a specific moment when I was in seminary when I left an inspiring lecture on preaching, just absolutely thrilled that one day, God willing, I would preach most Sundays. And praise God for my naivete because it helped me be a better seminary student. It did not matter then that I didn't know what I know now. That after 26 years of preaching as an ordained minister, that crafting a good sermon is incredibly hard for me. And because of the way I'm wired, sometimes it robs my sleep. Sometimes it wrecks my week. And sometimes it makes people I care about upset with me. Now, preaching remains a privilege, but it's also a burden. Because as John Newton said, it's a tough chore when the point of preaching often is to break the hard heart and heal the broken one. And just so you know how difficult that is, often it's the preacher's heart that needs to be broken or healed before the sermon can be preached. But no one needed to tell me that when I was walking through the quad after being inspired by that lecture, all aglow with the excitement of one day standing in a pulpit week after week. The problem with Peter is not that he's excited. The problem with Peter is not what he said. The problem is that Jesus can't now give them the luxury of time. He can't give them the luxury of the moment of the celebration because the disciples are seeing the growing crowds, exciting. But Jesus is seeing the growing anger of powerful people, frightening. The disciples see calls to celebrate, but Jesus sees calls to prepare for what's coming, and there's no time to wait. Jesus has to let those disciples know right away what lights ahead. Don't tell anyone that right now. He is a leader, but he is leading them to the cross. He's not going to be this revolutionary leader who's going to create a restored government, some nation under God. He is leading followers into a realm that is not about who holds the seats of power or to whom taxes flow or where borders are drawn and how they are defended. He is witnessing to the love of God that wants justice for the powerless, compassion for the sick, acceptance of the outcast, reconciliation between enemies. Anyone who truly looks to Jesus for guidance to God, well, they're going to have to regain a fresh understanding of God's law where all commands have to be subject to the principles of love of God and love of neighbor not protection of a political power or protection of a racial identity or social standing. And since existing authorities who benefit from how things stand are increasingly resisting Jesus' vision, these disciples need to see what's coming. 
So, Jesus ruins the celebration by opening the curtain to the future. He tells them by what cost will come the witness. His life. Peter can't hear it. I mean, who wants to hear that? Who wants at an infant baptism to hear what the child will later do that's going to worry and hurt that child's parents? Who wants to hear at confirmation what the struggles will be for young adults as they figure out what they are to do with their lives and the mistakes that they're going to make that hurt themselves and others? Who wants to hear at weddings what hard chapters couples will go through sometimes to figure things out? Never mind that Jesus goes on to say that even his death is not going to be the end of the story, that God's love cannot be ended, that the movement of compassion and justice cannot ultimately be stopped, that after three days the grave will be empty. Peter does not want to hear what Jesus just said, and he lets Jesus know it. And Jesus doesn't want to hear what Peter just said, and he lets him know it. Perhaps because Jesus doesn't like that cost either. Get behind me, tempter, he says. At least that is what I think he's really saying when he says, get behind me, Satan. You know, Peter needs to hear that good news at the end, but that's asking a lot of Peter. It's asking a lot of us. But when we face the heart in life, we need to hear that the grave in the end is empty. Because what this gives us is the kind of perspective we need when celebration isn't just found in the good moments of life, but when celebration can actually be found in all of life with the cost. There is with what Jesus last says, that thing that Peter can't hear, that's asking a lot for him to hear. There is this final celebration, Jesus says, that takes in all the hard and the hurt. There is a final joy that absorbs within itself the cost that comes of failure and the cost that comes of faith. It's really not the celebration of a baptism so much, but the celebration of the best kind of memorial services. I led three memorial services this past week, and I spoke at yet another. And when we remembered the lives of Mary Stewart and Marilyn and Bruce and Rosanna, we did. We, we remembered loved ones, people we loved, who did die. But they were celebrations. We enjoyed many happy memories and we gave thanks for their lives. We gave thanks even knowing some of what they had to deal with and face during their lives. They're having lost loved ones. They're having faced challenges that they thought that they would never have to face. And two of them eventually having to live with dementia and two with cancer. And yet, we could honestly be joyful. We could honestly celebrate those four people because they did live full lives. And even if we had known at the beginning, even if they had known at the beginning all that they had to face, we still would be so glad that they were born and that they lived. Because when you get and look back at it all, you see it all. 
and you still give thanks. Because we know at the end, it's the life we celebrate, not the death. You see, Jesus ruins the celebration of Peter's confession of faith because he's trying to lead him to a greater celebration of life that is greater than death. And Peter's going to get it. Just not now. Today is Stewardship Dedication Sunday. You know, in the Presbyterian tradition and in the tradition of this congregation, this is supposed to be a day that's just like when we celebrate a baptism or when we celebrate confirmation and when we celebrate a wedding. We ask the choir to sing at both services. We bring in the brass and we have what we call a joyful procession of stewards. The commitment of our lives and resources to the work of the church is Supposed to be, what we say on this day is supposed to be ways that we concretely respond to God's blessings with gratitude. It is joyous. But maybe this particular commitment Sunday, we are capable of hearing Jesus remind us that sometimes following him is hard. Sometimes being the church is hard. The challenges of the last 19 months have reminded us as a church what is true about us individually when we're trying to live as good people, when the world tempts us to buy into power games and even hate one another, and when we're faced with a pandemic that tries to keep us apart from each other. Now, we're not all the way through the pandemic, but with memories of the troubles of power struggles in our country, and with the experience of the last two years of living during a pandemic, we now know that being faithful as a church in our world involves cost and struggle and sacrifice sometimes. And I still think we have a lot of good reasons to celebrate anyway, that we have a lot of reasons to celebrate life even when it includes the heart. Let me just speak for the church, although it's true for all of us individually. Maybe two years ago, maybe two commitment Sundays ago, we could be naive in thinking that what laid ahead of us in the coming year was simply continued worship and education, an Edmonds lecture series, a church retreat at Massanetta, two normal Bible schools, one for children, one for adults, meals at the church, and we would continue to support the missions that we always support. That was what will lie ahead of us, right, Peter? But then the pandemic hit. And we had to put behind us some of what we thought had to happen. And you know what? We answered Jesus' question, who do you say that I am anyways? You followed Jesus even when it was hard. You remain resilient, even in challenging times. Those of you who gave to the church this past year and a half, you're responsible for keeping this church faithful, even when worship services were canceled in person, could only be online, even when meetings were moved to Zoom, even when visitation had to happen by phone. You helped us address issues like racism, even though we could not be together to look in each other's eyes. We found ways to provide instruction and nurture for our children. You kept the preschool staff paid even when they could not meet, when they had to shut down. You were resilient. 
but we've also changed. We discovered that this traditional church could be adaptive and we could meet challenges. And best of all, we got to the point where even though we did what we had to do, we're still doing what we have to do to stay safe. I see the mask. Our focus has moved away from the immediate moment of pandemic to again looking toward the future, looking toward what we need to be far beyond when we have to wear these things. For instance, here's something that happened that I just want to celebrate. I want to mark it. I want us all to remember it. It's become more clear to ourselves and to Roanoke that we're committed to those who are less fortunate than ourselves. That's not always the first thing that people thought of as Second Presbyterian Church, although I think that was terribly unfair because this has always been a mission-minded church. But I tell you what everybody knew about us. Everybody knew that we're a church that takes worship seriously and preaching seriously, music and education seriously, that we care for the sick, that we visit the homebound, that we take care of the grieving. But we quietly supported local outreach and it was sometimes overlooked. But you gave almost $100,000 over and beyond your pledge giving to those with the greatest needs. I know I'm talking finances, but this is Stewardship Commitment Sunday when I have the permission and right to. You gave over $100,000 over and beyond what our mission budget supports. And even under continuing constraints, we ran a mission campaign where we did something very few churches have ever done. We have raised well over a million dollars so that we can just simply give it all away, all of it for mission projects. And because of the kind of church that you were these last 19 months, thousands of individuals and families and churches will have better futures because of the church that you were in hard times. We can celebrate all of life with God, every chapter with God, because we are with the one who is with us in times good and hard, always leading us forward to a greater realm where the justice and compassion of God's love has the final word. Second Presbyterian, Finding Direction by Following Jesus.